Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, with a massive nursing crisis in Ontario, why is the government making it basically impossible for internationally educated nurses to help? Is reform needed to address the nursing shortage? And is the election behind Doug Ford's slow response to Omicron? Also, government sources have confirmed that kids are heading back to the classroom next week. We'll give you the latest on that. And the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention has advised Americans against travel to Canada due to rising COVID cases. Global Washington's correspondent Reggie Cicchini will talk to us about that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to talk about the impact of, uh, of this variant, and not just on the numbers and what it's having in the hospitals, but about what it's doing to people. Now, throughout the last couple of years, of course, dealing with huge changes in our lives because of the pandemic, uh, a problem's been brewing. It's called burnout. A global Skylar Peters has been looking into this and says with the use of this Omicron variant and the rising numbers that are going on and the impact that it's having on uh, healthcare workers in particular, that problem that was bubbling under the surface is now spreading all over the place. Here's the report. Resident physician with the WRHA, Joseph Darcel, says it's something he's seeing among his colleagues. But at the end of the day, I think it's important for us all to keep trying it. At the end of, at the, end of the day, that's what we're here for, right, is to make sure that people have the best health care and to present the options to them. No matter what walk of life you're from, experts say finding ways to deal with burnout is crucial. Canada Life's Director of Workplace Strategies for Mental Health, Marianne Baton, says it can be as simple as focusing on the things you love. You have to do the work to figure out what is it that makes you feel either calm or energized or relaxed or whatever feeling it is that can replace this feeling of burnout. Bainton says trying to do just one task at a time and actively slowing down your speech and thought will help you stay grounded in the moment. Skylar Peters, Global News. Well, nowhere has this been more evident than in the healthcare field. And we talked about that on the program yesterday, uh, the impact that it's having, particularly on, on staff in hospitals and with nurses. Uh, surgeries have been canceled. Uh, tests that have been well deemed to be non-essential uh, have been put off, causing a great deal of angst, of course, within the population and a great deal of burnout uh, within the nursing staff as well. So what's going to happen? The numbers are down. Even people that are staying on the job are getting sick. And you're being told if you're sick, then you can't go to work. You've got to isolate. It's been an ongoing problem. And uh, we talked yesterday about possible solutions to this. Uh, One of them is, uh, well, the restrictions. We're told that there are a number of people from other parts of the world that are wanting to come here that are qualified, at least in their opinion, uh, with their qualifications to be nurses here, which could alleviate an awful lot of the stress on the existing nursing staff. But it's just not happening. Why? What seems to be the problem here? Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Mariana Bueno, who is a research fellow at the Hospital for Sick Children. Uh, Doctor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Hi, good morning, Bill. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, we've talked about this and tried to get some details about this, Doctor, over the last couple of hours or days on the program. Uh, we've talked with people in the healthcare field uh, about what's happening in government officials. Uh, we just don't have enough people to go to work right now. Nurses are getting frustrated. Some are leaving the profession altogether. Others are getting sick because they're dealing with people that are dealing with the pandemic itself. Uh, there is an ongoing problem here, and we're told yesterday that uh, there are a number of nurses that uh, are qualified, at least in the, in the minds of many people, uh, to come in here to Ontario right now, but they can't seem to pass some of the hurdles that the government's putting up. What's actually happening here, Doctor? Yeah. Well, it seems that there are around 15,000 internationally trained nurses waiting for registration, at least in Ontario. 
So it's a lot of people willing to work, willing to get um, their hands on the job, but there are lots of roadblocks that are precluding or delaying um, these people to get into the like nursing market. Now, the first uh, inclination, I guess, a lot of us would have is, well, there goes the government again with all the red tape. And I, I can understand that mindset because more often than not, that's a factor in situations like this. But I want to ask you also about the College of Nurses of Ontario, because that's the governing body, of course, for the nurses. Uh, and they set standards, as many other professional organizations do. Uh, what What's their role in this? And are they being helpful or are they, are they part of the problem here? Well, um, I believe uh, we are not, I am an internationally educated nurse and I've been trying to um, work with the college for around two years and a half now um, towards my registration. And I think um, we are not asking for lowering the standards at all. Like we recognize it's important in terms of safety for patients, safety for clinicians, and for the nurses as well. Uh, but we need a better process. We need to streamline. We need a clear, more organized process. Because so far, it's very um, lengthy. It's expensive. It's lots of back and forwards. It's, it's really hard to navigate and to get through all the process to to get to the board exam. So all of us are asked to take an exam even before getting the registration. So this, this is, I'm talking about all this process before getting this board um, exam done. So it's all about reviewing our education credentials, our previous experience in nursing. So there are lots of steps that are simply um, not well organized, not well understood by the public or the, the, the nurses that are trying to register in general. You know, as we were having this discussion, I, I, I can remember because this reminded me vividly of a show I probably did about 10 or 12 years ago, and it had to do with doctor shortages in the province of Ontario. And you all remember that discussion, don't we? Uh, that there weren't enough general uh, practitioners, uh, they couldn't seem to get enough people graduating from medical school. And, and and again, part of the solution was there are a number of foreign trained doctors, some of them Canadian, who went you know, to other countries to get their qualifications because they couldn't get into medical school here. Uh, because of the reduced numbers of enrollment. Anyway, long story short, the pressure was on the government to expedite the process. Uh, and they did that to a certain extent anyway. It looks as if the same sort of thing is going to have to happen here. Well, um, I would think so. Um, one of the steps, for example, for this process is the review of the education credentials, which is essential, right? Uh, mm -hmm. But for, for my experience, for example, it took one year for the agency to review all my documentation. That's a US-based agency that reviews for the College of Nurses of Ontario. And the same process for US colleges takes around three to four months. So it starts in, in this first step with the assessment. Another barrier that I could uh, tell you is the communication with the college. We don't have a navigator or a case manager for each of the cases. So every time I send them a document, I send them an email, a communication, it takes them six months 
to evaluate and get back to me. So that, that's a, a lot of time, especially now during a pandemic, we should find ways of streamlining this, um, these timelines and reducing the deadlines for the registration overall. So when you, this correspondence that you're going back and forth with here, doctor, are you dealing actually with the college or are you dealing with this, uh, this American agency that is actually uh, going through this process? No, I, I've been through the American agency so mm -hmm. that's the okay. first step to getting to the college. Um, and now I'm dealing with the College of uh, Nurses of Ontario um, requirements. So I've been through... Okay, so you're doing directly. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, there's, you made a point a second ago that I just want to underscore once again, because I think it's very important to this conversation. Uh, nobody, not your, yourself, doctor, nor the other people... Uh, I know that there are 26 nurses right now that have already gone through this process, by the way, and basically yeah. got the thumbs up, but they still haven't got their visas to be able to come and work here. That, that's, a, that's on the government on yeah. situations like that. But, but the point I wanted to make that you made a second ago, nobody is suggesting lowering the standards here. Not at all. It's a matter of expediting the process to try to get these people into Ontario and working in hospitals. That's, that's the request here. It's not to say, hey, drop the standards so anybody else can get in there. They're, nobody, I think, is asking for that, are they? Yeah, exactly. We are not asking that they register anyone or whoever applies, no matter what. We are asking them to um, streamline, to improve the process, to make it clearer, easier for people to understand, easier for people to apply and to comply with their requirements. At this point, uh, that are... go ahead, sorry. No, I, I was going to say that's that's a very important part of the conversation, uh, because we want the best and the brightest and, and the most qualified people to be working in our hospitals, and there are lots of them out there, and, and lots of them are going through this process right now, and are just as frustrated as you are uh, yeah. going through this process right now, and they're basically saying we want to help, we're qualified to help, why can't we get in there? Yeah, and and take those twenty six nurses who have everything ready right now. That's not my situation, unfortunately, but we have at least twenty six nurses ready to work, and they they are having problems with their visas, their work permit. So um, we need to look into those situations and and take an action. We we can't wait any longer. I you know as as I'm looking at some of the information here, I would, Doctor. I, I'm, I'm flummoxed by, by some of the protocols that are in place here. And in your particular situation, uh, and I, I don't mean to, to center you up, but I think it's worthy of, 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 of letting our listeners know exactly what's going on. In your particular situation, uh, Dr. Bono, our guest here, uh, has a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, and a PhD degree in nursing. Uh, and, and you still haven't gone through all the hoops in, that you have to go through. I mean, you are eminently qualified for this role. You're, you're very, very much wanting to do this. Uh, yet you're not even at the near the finish line here, are you? No, I'm not. Um, yeah, as you said, I completed all my training in Brazil, and I've been in this postdoctoral position for four years because my intention while moving to Canada was to get into academia. So I was an assistant professor in two different nursing schools in Brazil. And we moved to Canada for personal reasons, my, but my goal was to get into academia here and continue to working with nursing education and research. Uh, but it's been two years and a half that I'm dealing with um, the College of Nurses and all this registration process. So 
Um, I, I, I don't know what to say. I, I provided them all the information. I provided them a detailed description of my role and all the activities I've performed while on, on being an assistant professor, but I'm still waiting on them. And again, as I said, I know I'm in a privileged position because I have a good um, um, work position now. I'm a postdoctoral fellow, so I'm, I'm in a very good position at this point. But I know others who are um, working at grocery stores, um, as PSWs, or other positions while, work, while waiting for the registration. Um, so it's, it's really, um, as I said, a matter of um, streamlining this process. People cannot um, wait for years to get their life back on track once they're here in Canada. They, they, if, if they immigrate, if they're here, they really need to, to get themselves organized. They really need to be entitled to work uh, for what they are qualified for. How frustrating is this for you and, and for the others that we've talked about here? And, and there are many, many uh, people in, in very similar situations that are basically stuck in this process right now. And as you say, uh, they're taking jobs to be, to, they've got bills to pay like everybody else yeah. does on a daily basis here. But when they hear stories and when you hear stories, doctor, about uh, surgeries that are canceled, uh, important medical tests that are being postponed because we just don't have the staff in hospitals right now to accommodate them. Uh, we talk about burnout. Uh, the, the, the initial reaction has to be, I could be helping. I could be part of the solution here. And I, I you know, I'm stuck in this, this vortex here of, of red tape. It's got to be awfully frustrating for all of you. Well, it's, it's very frustrating indeed because um, you have a plan on your mind, right? And then you get into all these barriers and all these roadblocks and you need to think, you need to put things aside or you need to do things differently in a way that you have never imagined. And, and watching all this pandemic, I, I recognize it has impacted um everyone in, in in a negative way and including the college and and probably they have lots of things to deal with and to process but um, because of the shortage of nurses because of the burnout and all the risks the nurses are taking um, working short-staffed working while being exposed to covid um, something really needs to be done it's 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 urgent that um, they take an action and they reviewed this um, registration process for the internationally educated nurses. Well, as we mentioned on the program yesterday, uh, this is not the solution of the problem, but it could well be a big part of the, uh, the answer uh, to the crisis that we're facing right now in healthcare. And it's a staffing situation uh, because of the burnout and because of the, the impact of Omicron. Uh, I'm hoping that, uh, that the people at Queen's Park and, and frankly, also the people at the, the College of Nurses understand this. Uh, it's... <laughs> And again, nobody's saying let's lower the standards so more people can come in there. They're saying move the process along so that these eminently qualified people such as yourself, doctor, uh, can be a part of the solution right now. And I'm hoping that the, the, the powers that be at Queen's Park are going to listen to this and respond to it in, in kind. I do thank you so much for taking some time. I, I understand your frustration. I'm hoping that somewhere down the road in the not-too-distant future we can be having a conversation, Doctor, about uh, you moving forward on this and some of the other folks that are qualified to move forward on this to try to help the situation. But thank you so much for coming on the program today and uh, shedding the light on this. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Bill. It was a great opportunity. I really appreciate it.
Hang in there, doctor, and thanks again for this. Dr. Mariana Bueno, who is a research fellow at the Hospital for Sick Children, uh, talking about the plight of people that want to be nurses here in this province. They're qualified, uh, but the, the roadblocks that are being put up and the red tape and the slow process to try to get these people into the hospitals to try to help with the situation right now is just not helping. And the government's got to move forward on this. That, that, that's all there is to it. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. In-class learning is going to resume on Monday. We're going to give you the details on that in just a couple of minutes here in the province of Ontario. Uh, but there are some other things and restrictions that have been put in place over the last little while that are frankly head scratchers. A lot of people are wondering exactly where the government is getting their ideas about how they're going to implement uh, their strategy for moving on Omicron. You may remember just before Christmas, uh, the province announced some new regulations and in some case restrictions that very day. Uh, I had Dr. Peter Uni on the program, of course, from the Ontario Science Table, and I asked him quite up, frankly, I said, are these the recommendations that you passed on to the Premier? And he said, no. Well, uh, Tasha Kierden writes about this. Uh, Tasha, of course, is Principal at Navigator and Vice President of the Canadian Centre for the Purpose of Corporation. Uh, her piece in the National Post is very insightful and I think a very provocative headline. It says, why didn't Ford act earlier on Omicron? Tasha joins us on the program uh, it's not a rhetorical question, Tasha. First of all, Happy New Year. Good to have you back in the program today. Uh, it's the question an awful lot of people in Ontario, especially in the healthcare field and education field, are asking. Why is there seemingly a disconnect between what the science table and the quote-unquote experts are suggesting and what the government's doing here in Ontario? Well, I think as you pointed out, uh, December 16th, the science table came out with pretty dire projections um, saying that we would have in excess of 10,000 cases per day by Christmas. And then it sort of the chart disappeared into the, you know, into space there. It was so high. Um, when you did the calculations, it was about 30,000 per day by January 1st. So they, their recommendation at the time was reduce all contacts by 50%, uh, bring in measures immediately to a circuit breaker, which basically would have killed Christmas for everybody as well as New Year's. And so politically, uh, the government instead went to, as you said, uh, restrictions that were 50% capacity in malls or, you know, in restaurants, this kind of thing uh, in retail, they, they scaled back, but they, and they recommended people not have, you know, more than, I think it was 10 outside, five inside. But the thing is, the problem was that was not enough. And people, people acted on what they were told by the government was okay. Um, they acted on beliefs that Omicron, for example, is milder, which generally speaking, it is, but the volume of cases is the problem. So the result is where we are today. And then the government, you know, has been going back and forth and seesawing all over the place. Like you feel like, especially if you're a parent, your head is like whipping from side to side as in what are these new restrictions? Now kids are going back to school. We were told they may not go. I mean, it, it, it's very, very frustrating. And it's, it's I think, it's a sign of bad leadership and just political decision making. But why the half measures? And this is not new. We, we, you and I had this conversation 12 months ago uh, yeah. because, you know, there was a disconnect again between what the experts were saying and what the government did. Uh, and we're that much closer, as you pointed out in the piece in the Post uh, today, uh, to, to an election, which is coming up in the first week of June. Uh, how much of a factor is that in, in what this government is doing and, and how they're trying to portray themselves as, as the champions of, of, of the experts here, the, the medical experts? Well, I think they are actually, um, I think it's completely politically driven. I think, like I said, if they if they had brought in the real requirements before Christmas, they basically said to everyone, only celebrate with members of your own household, stop shopping, uh, stay home. You know, what would have happened was it was the busiest retail time, busiest time of the year, uh, or one of them for the retail sector. Businesses would have been hurt. Restaurants were already, they were all 
anything under the, the 50% measures, if you had gone further, Ford would have had a huge outcry from the business community. Second, he would have, he would have upset um, a very vocal minority of people who don't believe that we should be doing anything, uh, you know, vaccines or whatever, um, who think that things are far too restrictive as they were. And those people uh, would have complained as well. And, you know, everyone would have been kind of annoyed that Christmas travel, all that stuff would have been off the table or should have been off the table. Um, so he didn't want to upset everyone before the holidays. It's kind of like, you know, you don't want to break up with someone before the holidays. You think it's too mean. <laughs> you wait till later. It's worse, actually. Look what's happened. Um, the result is is that we have now an explosion of cases. We have over 400 patients in the ICU. I mean, it's, it's provincially. It's it's going to go to the point where, you know, and they've canceled surgeries for so many people, um, cancer, heart. I mean, this is the consequence of inaction. And there's polling out today showing people are unhappy about it. No surprise. Um, but it, I think it's just this government is incredibly frustrating because they keep doing this. They do stuff for political reasons and they play catch up and it's too late. Um, and yes, the election's in June. So I think they're hoping this will be gone by then. Um but I think people should remember. I mean, you know, it's only a few months away. It's interesting, though. I mean, you know, the political adage, of course, is when you try to please everybody, you end up pleasing nobody. And that seems to be Correct. exactly what's happening here in Ontario right now. But from a political standpoint, if that's the motivation here, and I, I, I agree with you, I think that's, there's a lot more going on in that cabinet room than just medical advice from, from the science table. Uh, there's a lot of people there wondering about their re-election and the chances of another majority government. I think you've got to know that's part of the conversation. But the people that yep. they're afraid of, 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 you know, getting upset on the right, they're going to vote for them anyway, if they're going to vote at all. I mean, do you really think that, you know, somebody who's an anti-vaxxer is going to say, well, I'm, I'm voting NDP then if he's going to do this. That's not going to happen. We know that. That's the political reality. So he's really a, a, a trying to a, a appeal to a group that he's already got on side here right now. Uh, you know, so why not do the right thing? Well, you would think um, those people don't maybe have another option. Politically, they could stay home. And that is, yeah. I think, part of the thinking is that and within his own cabinet, um, within his part, within his caucus, certainly there's division on how far measures should go. And I think part of it is a Toronto versus the rest of the province issue. Um, you see this a lot in places outside Toronto where I am right now. I'm in North Kawartha. And, uh, you know, during the federal election, there was a lot of people's party signs springing up around here. There were a lot of people who feel I've seen protests in Bancroft. I've seen people, you know, just getting feeling that this is not their problem, that the COVID is not rampant. At least it wasn't until Omicron. Um, in many parts of the province, it was really an urban issue. And, you know, people working in essential services in places like um, Mississauga and Scarborough and places where you had high concentration, high density um, and people working in, in closed spaces. And so there was a sense of, of disconnect. And where are the conservatives most of their ridings? Well, that's where they are. They are outside of the GTA. That is really their strength. So you have it's it, it, po po politics and candidates increasingly being polarized on rural urban lines. We don't talk about it a lot. But especially for conservatives, it is an issue as the country becomes increasingly urbanized. So you've got this situation where to please, you know, to avoid to have peace in the in the family, in the in the in the conservative family, so to speak, you're not going to upset people who you need whose political support you need to um, as leader. So that's, I think, what happened. And that calculation, like I said, is, is very frustrating because what it does is it makes everybody pay at the end of the day. All those people who can't get their surgery and can't get this and can't, those are the people who are paying now. Kids who aren't in school are paying now. I mean, they're going back Monday. Now we know, but you know, it it didn't have to come to this. 
And your point, by the way, about small town Ontario is well taken. I mean, we spent a lot of time up in the Blue Mountain Collingwood area. And and the federal election, I guess, is a classic example of that, wasn't it? I mean, the People's Party got a lot more support than people had. They were the only political party that grew during that election campaign. Now, they didn't get any seats out of it, but they certainly cut into the conservative uh, vote in, in a lot of areas right now. But is there concern within the, the, the Progressive Conservative Caucus here in Ontario, Tasha, that, that that's going to be a factor? I mean, they, there is no Provincial People's Party per se. Uh, there aren't too many options here right now. So it, I guess it's either vote Conservative or stay home. Uh, but staying home could be just as problematic for them, couldn't it? Yeah, it could be problematic. And you think about um, what's happened before uh, with measures that, you know, were promised by Conservative governments or Conservative parties and people got very frustrated didn't vote for them. I remember, um, you know, when Tim Hudock was leader and there was the whole question of, uh, you know, pink slipping 100,000 civil servants. Yeah. Uh, and that didn't go over very well with people. Um, there was the issue, I think, also of the treatment of autistic children in schools. That didn't go over well with people like me, um, you know, who are, are very cognizant of that community and have family that, that are in that community. It, it the, the, the calculation that you can just, I think, depend on your base at all costs. No, because that base is not you know, it's not necessarily also who you think it is. Everyone knew a civil servant, for example, everyone's second cousin or friend or whatever. So they're like, are, are these people going to be fired? Um, you know, it, 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 there's this there's dependency on, well, we've got this reliable base, like you said, with nowhere to go. I don't think that's true. Um, and I think people shouldn't be taken for granted because it's disrespectful. It really is. Um, and at the end of the day, like I said, it's not good. Pol- it's not good policy, maybe good politics in some people's minds, but not good policy. It may it may not even be good politics when you look at this. I mean, if if there's an argument to be made that by doing what they're doing, and, and as you mentioned in the piece, by going through half measures with just about every one of these policies, if they're going to drag this thing out, and if, if COVID is still a factor come June, you got to figure that's going to be an impact on in, in which way people are going to vote. Right, you would. I think what, based on research that we've seen coming out of places like South Africa, there's it. Omicron has been kind of a two month wave. And since it really peaks after a month and then it starts to go down, um, hopefully we'll see the same trajectory here, which means that by the summer we won't be into, you won't be in this situation anymore. And, but, but the point is that if you, you didn't have to have the needless suffering in between and you didn't have to have this whipsaw effect. And I think that's what frustrates people. Um, There's a study out now or pull out now that shows there's a discrepancy too, between parents and non-parents, 47% of parents think the government's on the wrong track. 41% 41% of non-parents think it's on the wrong track. Um, well, for a party that, that you know builds itself as family-friendly and and uh, <laughs> wanting to be there for, for families and their kids, that's not very good news. Um, you know, lots of parents out there are very, very angry with the way this has been handled. It's a thought-provoking piece. You can check it out in the, the National Post, of course. Uh, Tasha, as always, uh, thank you so much for the time today. Great talking with you again. Uh, uh, good luck shoveling out of the Kawarthas, by the way. I know you got a lot of snow up there in the last <laughs> couple of days. I'm going to be here a while. <laughs> There you go. That'll go. Bye. Take care, Tasha. Tasha Carrot, a principal at Navigator and vice president of the Canadian Center for the Purpose of uh, Corporation and uh, also an outstanding writer, of course, as we've seen over the years. This is the Bill Kelly Show, CFPL London, 900 CHML in Hamilton. Uh, Let's talk about that situation with Ontario schools right now. Uh, The government sources have confirmed right now with uh, Global News that students will be heading back to the classrooms as of this Monday. Global's Tina Trajani has some details. With less than a week to go, we're still waiting for official word from the Ford government about the return to in-person learning. Elementary and high school students were initially scheduled to get back to classrooms last week after the holiday, but that was pushed back due to growing concerns about the rapid spread of the Omicron variant. While kids were at home, Premier Doug Ford indicated that extra time would be put to good use. Vaccination clinics were set up for educators and 
and childcare staff. Additional HEPA filters were placed in schools and N95 masks delivered across Ontario. We're making sure that we, we always have a, a safe environment, uh, which it has been uh, over the period of time throughout the pandemic. When students head back, the government has also said there would be new screening and cohorting protocols in place. Tina Twerjani, Global News. And the Premier has made it official, uh, that notwithstanding the information that we got at Global News from our folks at uh, Queen's Park. Uh, it, it is official now. Uh, as of Monday, they're heading back to school. Are they ready? Uh, and how is this going to work out? Uh, pleased to welcome back to the program Karen Brown to talk about this. Karen, of course, is the president of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario. Uh, Karen, first of all, good to have you with us back on the program today. Are uh, you surprised by this announcement today? Uh, more, more in a sense, I'm disappointed by, by the announcement t- today. Uh, we understood that the government was going to be reevaluating uh, the situation, that we would be uh, contacted, notified uh, of some of the decisions, and we, we didn't hear anything at all, and that's really disheartening, uh, troubling. Our members have been uh, frontline on this pandemic, and it's, it's really disrespectful that they didn't take the opportunity to connect with us and for us to talk about a long-term plan so that we could have a sustainable in-person learning. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to try to get into the head of the Premier or the Education Minister as to why they didn't consult you, uh, but it might have been because you might have had some feedback about some of the things that they've said here. Now, the, the, you know, the official announcement here uh, talks about all the great work that they've done during the closure over the Christmas holidays about getting uh, N95 respirators for education and uh, child care staff, vaccination clinics. Uh, they said a lot of the infrastructure problems have been addressed. Uh, I'm hearing from some of the boards and some of the teachers that saying, well, that's not necessarily true. I, I can tell you, and I'm sure you know this fact, Karen, in, here in Hamilton, in the Hamilton area, only about half of the uh, of the projects that, that were supposed to be done uh, to try to clean up uh, air systems and air quality systems have been done. Some of them aren't going to be done for at least another year and a half, which begs the question, is this a safe environment for teachers and, and students to return to? Uh, we're, we're not sure right now. It doesn't. It doesn't seem to us that it is. It is safe. And these measures were only put in place in regards to because of our push. We have been pushing this government to invest in um, N95 masks for our members. Our members were threatened to be disciplined earlier in the pandemic because they wanted this added level of protection. We push for the prioritization of our members for booster clinics and vaccines in the beginning of this pandemic. So this government didn't move until actually we began to really advocate uh, for our members. And we're hearing the same thing you're hearing. Uh, we Some masks have been delivered. Have there been enough? Will there be enough uh, to go throughout this pandemic? Is it just enough for a week, a month, a few days? We have no idea. These HEPA filters are nowhere to be seen. Uh, 3,000 HEPA filters are going to take time. They don't magically appear. That's not enough for uh, every classroom in the province and for those spaces where students are, are engaging in, in those public and shared spaces. That's still a concern for us. And we're hearing that uh, there's going to be uh, changes in the, in the procedures for cohorting, which means what they're going to be doing is they're going to be collapsing classrooms, um, mixing kids together, and that's that's not a way to, to help to slow the spread. Uh, we need to uh, ensure uh, that the proper program, a proper plan is in place to address uh, the issue of, of staffing absence because of illness and isolation. Uh, education is not immune to this virus. You look at health care, uh, our members will get sick, students will get sick. There needs to be a plan in place, and we haven't heard that plan. 
Well, you did hear what they thought was part of the solution. I want to get your comment on that, too. And that was uh, to relax the restrictions on uh, retired teachers and, and vice principals and principals, et cetera, uh, to get back into the school environment to try to alleviate some of those staffing shortages. Uh, and, and I know the education minister is feeling pretty good about that and saying, here we go, you know, that's, that's going to alleviate this. Uh, the number I saw on this I thought was intriguing. I think there's over 100,000 people that are eligible uh, retired teachers. Only about 60 of them, according to the Ontario Teachers Federation, have expressed any interest at all in even doing something like this. Uh, 60 teachers across the province is not going to solve the problem. And what I'm hearing from the, the Federation most of the time is they're saying, we're not going back into that because it's not a safe environment. There is no social distancing, the masking situation, the HEPA filler situation. Uh, we don't want to risk our own health to try to, to alleviate a problem the government's created. What are you hearing? Uh, we're hearing the, the same thing. Uh, they released these measures, relaxed the measures last year for retired teachers. Our data says the retired teachers did not take this up. They weren't lining up to go back into schools that are not safe. They're retired. They're enjoying the, that, that, that time they've contributed to the system. They're not going to put their health and safety at risk. Uh, they're seniors. I'm not sure why we're thinking that our seniors are going to put themselves in that situation. Uh, it's not safe. Our numbers are, are saying that they're not going to take that uptake. The masking, the ventilation, the large class sizes, uh, it's, it's a concern. It's airborne. We haven't done enough. This is not going to, to help with that problem. People are not going to be taking that. Our occasional teacher members don't have benefits. Uh, they don't have paid sick days. They're going to ensure that of their safety and the safety of their, their families, and they don't want to contaminate their colleagues. So they are, going to, they are going to be resistant and hesitant to take on these positions. Got about a minute left here, but I have to ask you, because in past government announcements, we found out uh, after we peeled back a few layers that, as you just mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, they didn't really consult with the other principals involved, in this case, the teachers themselves, uh, which kind of left you as, as teachers and school administrators uh, to, to go through all the minutiae here to try to make this work. What's it going to look like Monday morning uh, when everybody is allowed back in the classroom? Are they going to be ready? Is there going to be mass confusion? Is there is there a plan right now? Uh, we we what we do know is that um, there the government is not going to be reinstating uh, any any monitoring and we were saying they need to be monitoring there needs to be testing of students and staff parents need to feel comfortable sending their kids uh, to school and our members need to feel comfortable going to schools uh, we don't know how many students are going to to show up we don't know what's going to be happening this is the first time in in weeks since the break that we're actually going in but what we do know the environment hasn't changed much the, lot, the large class sizes are still there. Our members are interacting with students. Our kindergarten students are still un, 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 unmasked. And we know that about 40, only about 40% of, of students, uh, 5 to 11 years old, are actually, actually vaccinated. So there are still some great measures uh, that are a concern to our members and are going to impact how long schools remain open. Uh, parents need to brace themselves for school closures and, and for a really a, a time of interrupted learning. We're not sure that we can sustain this. Our members are not immune to this virus, either our students. Uh, we're looking at the other sectors, like I said, uh, in regards to health care. Uh, we, we feel that, you know, we have to be careful in regards to, to slowing the, the spread. We can't stop it, but uh, the measures that need to be placed to slow the spread, we haven't seen all of those. Karen, we're going to stay in touch with you and your organization and see how things roll out over the next couple of days. Uh, thanks, as always, for jumping in uh, and short notice to give us your perspective on this. And uh, uh, we're hoping things uh, work out on, well on Monday, but uh, we'll deal with those realities, I guess, in the days ahead. Thanks again.
Okay, thank you, Bill. Take care. Take care. Karen Brown, president of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario. Students in Ontario back to school on Monday. Are they ready? Well, I guess we'll find out Monday morning. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. South of the border, uh, well, a few eyebrows were raised with the story yesterday that uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in uh, the United States have a- essentially issued a- a- an advisory against travel to Canada because of the rising number of COVID-19 cases here in this country. Uh, the CDC elevated its travel recommendations to level four, very high for Canada, uh, telling Americans they should avoid travel to their northern neighbor. Should we be concerned about this? Uh, joining us to talk about all of this and the ramifications, uh, Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, of course, is a Washington correspondent for Global News. Uh, Reggie, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning. Headlines can be deceiving sometimes. I mean, we saw this uh, on, on Global National last night about the the new restrictions and the, and the recommendations from the CDC. Canada's not alone. This was actually a release for about a long list of countries, wasn't it? Yeah, look, there are 80 different countries uh, that are now listed as a level four. Canada and Curacao uh, were the most recently added. Uh, this is not the first time as well that Canada has been listed as uh, as a level four for concern. This happened a couple of times over the course uh, of 2020 and 2021. Uh, but now as a part of that kind of growing list, Canada and Curacao, along with Ireland and Iceland and France and the, uh, France and the Netherlands and the United Kingdom, essentially saying to Americans, look, these are places where you may go, you you may find yourself sick. You may be stuck in that country. Uh, there may be ramifications if you are uh, traveling outside of the United States. It's all part of a more broad push for Americans to simply kind of cut back on uh, international travel. But it is raising questions given the fact that Canada's COVID cases, while sure they are increasing uh, per the metrics that the CDC uses, is still far lower than something like the United States outbreak right now. Let me ask you about that on a comparative level, because the numbers are staggering when you look at the number of new cases in the states. As one of my colleagues mentioned the other day, this is kind of like the kettle calling the pot black. Shouldn't they be looking after their own house? Is the CDC more worried about an American going to, well, for instance, Canada, or are they more worried about what they might bring back when they return home? Look, uh, the CDC is vague when it comes to uh, giving the reasoning for why they're making one decision uh, over another. The CDC, essentially, when they make these travel uh, advisories, that I should point out that the U.S. State Department followed last night. They put the same level four travel advisory out for Americans, but they simply look at metrics that say when you have 500 cases per 100,000 residents over a 28-day period, that uh, will increase it up to a level four and spark concern for Americans that are traveling. Now, you've got to remember, Americans need to be vaccinated to be able to get into Canada, so this is a potential concern here for for any breakthrough cases that may show up. But when you're just putting, you know, the fruit in the bowl and comparing apples to oranges, the United States, uh, rather Canada yesterday, 34,174 cases and 74 deaths. The United States yesterday posted 1.35 million cases in a 24-hour period. So obviously you're seeing a significantly higher rate of transmission in the United States. And again, is this the United States simply projecting outwards by saying, look, control your, uh, your COVID crisis, well, we kind of don't really talk about our own, um, and, and trying to ensure that you know, other countries deal with it so that it doesn't get back into the United States. There's a lot of questions uh, that aren't being answered about why the CDC put this recommendation out there. Nonetheless, it still is worth pointing out, you need to be vaccinated to get into Canada, so that does cut down on uh, the number of Americans who can actually cross the border. 
Reggie, how are Americans responding to, to these new numbers and how are they reacting to them? I mean, we've talked uh, over the last couple of days here about the impact these new numbers are having on, on health care, on, on absenteeism in, in, well, in hospitals, but in just about every other facet of life too. Uh, people staying home if they have the sniffles and concerns like that. Is, is it having an impact? Are people uh, concerned about the impact it's going to have on the economy with these rising numbers? I mean, sure, look, and it's already having an impact on the economy. Uh, the broader, large-scale corporations have seen either reduced hours or an inability to service their customers at uh, at kind of peak rate because they are seeing such a high number uh, of sick outs. You're seeing uh, companies like Starbucks start to close down locations on a temporary basis around the U.S. simply because they don't have the employees to be able uh, to work. Uh, you're seeing smaller businesses in general shut down, again, because not only are they not seeing uh, a staff uh, that they're able to service, but they're also not seeing the customer base, and ultimately they're not seeing the cash come in. So these growing numbers, these larger numbers, are creating a new problem, not just for the economy, but also for the Biden administration, and it is, again, pulling politics back into this message, which is why you have the CDC constantly trying to change its message to ensure that Americans understand the severity of not just this COVID crisis we've been living in for two years, but of Omicron and the necessity for things like vaccines and boosters uh, and mask-wearing, but again, this far into the pandemic, when you're starting to see numbers rise, you are going to see those skeptics, you are going to see those critics say, well, everything we've done for the last two years is clearly not working. Why should we continue to do something else? Again, this is a highly politicized uh, pandemic. And as the numbers go up, it only creates a further rift. Is, is this starting to, 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 to fall into party lines now? Uh, as, as you've mentioned to us in previous conversations, uh, politics permeates just about every discussion, whether it's about Omicron or anything else. And midterm elections are coming up, of course, and there's a great deal of concern about the impact that's going to have on both the Senate and, and the House. Uh, and, and, you know, we've already seen some of the pushback uh, from some of the political leaders on this. Are, are, are they going to make this an issue in the upcoming elections? Of course they're going to, uh, and you're already seeing some of that come to light. Look, Ted Cruz yesterday, obviously somebody who has found himself under uh, considerable uh, scrutiny for things not to do with COVID, but to do with the January 6th attack and, and his kind of, uh, you know, kneeling before Fox News a couple of days ago, waded back into the COVID crisis yesterday by trying to take uh, a conversation that the CDC director was having over the number of deaths that have occurred because of COVID and the comorbidities that have been involved uh, in COVID deaths by trying to spin that as something that may not actually be truthful. Uh, and that's where you're seeing the Republican Party run, or at least this new Republican Party, pushing back on uh, on the death numbers, pushing back on the vaccines, re-upping this kind of resistance to the science to try and get this country out of COVID. This is going to play uh, a critical role, and the Democrats are going to have to step up their game. Look, the, the President of the United States, uh, in his pre-Christmas message, made a comment that the U.S. was going to bulk up by the millions the number of rapid tests to be made available to Americans. Here we are on January 11th. You can still hardly find a rapid test on any um, uh, store website, like a Walmart or a Walgreens. Uh, insurance companies are supposed to start being able to pick up and cover the costs for these rapid tests, but they are unavailable. So Democrats are really finding themselves backed into a corner once again, because not only are they struggling to keep up with demand when it comes to preventative measures like testing, they're also still falling behind when it comes to messaging. And that is going to be something Republicans are going to pounce on over the next several months.
and, and that's the masking and the testing. The vaccination is is an interesting story as well. And and we know that earlier last year, of course, in the first few months of the Biden administration, uh, the vaccination program was a great success, and and the numbers were astronomical. Uh, it tailed off very very quickly, of course. And there's a lot of concern. And as you've been reporting over the last little while, some pushback on that is there's still hope in the White House that they can rekindle that program and get people to to, to roll up their sleeves again. Well, look, it's running into resistance, especially now that you hear conversations starting to rumble that, look, maybe two doses of the Pfizer vaccine aren't really strong enough to get past Omicron. The booster shot is needed to deal with Omicron, but people who are more immunocompromised may need a fourth shot of Pfizer to be able to deal with this latest variant. And that is, again, starting to spark some of that conversation of, well, you promised us these vaccines would work. These vaccines are not working. Now you're telling us we need to get more vaccines. This is, a again, a messaging problem for the Democrats, something they have come up against time and time again, that they're not being truthful with the evolving uh, and ever-changing science. Uh, and essentially, they wait too long to make a message about vaccines. Look, there are still tens of millions of Americans who have still yet to receive their first vaccine. There are still more than 100 million Americans uh, that still are yet to receive uh, their booster. This is a struggling campaign that very likely is up against a wall, which is why you're seeing the president, members from uh, the CDC, someone like Dr. Fauci, all but on bended knee, begging Americans to protect themselves by trying to say, look, this is going to continue to perpetuate. It may become endemic, but we can calm it down if you do a basic thing like getting vaccinated. But again, because the messaging has been so politicized and has ultimately become so controversial, they're finding it difficult to get new people to roll up a sleeve. Yeah, I'm glad you brought Dr. Fauci up. Uh, for those of us who watch the Sunday morning news shows, of course, uh, spinning from station to station, Dr. Fauci was doing the rounds on those shows, of course, uh, this past weekend. And he made a comment that, that caused an awful lot of, of, of concern, I think, in some circles, Reggie. He said, look, at by his count, and this was only he speaking for himself, I guess, looking at some of the data, uh, that he thought that the Omicron numbers were going to drop considerably by the end of this month. I mean, that's something we've been told in the past, that, yeah, with Omicron, the numbers are going to go up considerably very, very quickly. And we're, that's happening now, but they're going to drop almost as quickly. Uh, is, is that defeating his own message? People may look at that and simply say, well, we can just ride this out then. We don't have to roll up our sleeves. Well, and again, this is criticism that that uh, medical experts and health experts like Dr. Fauci or like Dr. Walensky and even members of the Trump administration at the time uh, have been having to deal with by trying to take the United States and model it after uh, a graph that's coming from somewhere like the UK or coming from a graph out of India or coming from a graph uh, out of, uh, of Israel by saying, well, look at what's happening over there. That's likely what's going to happen here. The conditions, obviously, you'll hear this from medical experts up and down the wall. The conditions in one country don't always emulate the conditions in your own country. Uh, and it has to do a lot with vaccine rate. It has to do a lot with the age of the population. It has to do uh, with other issues that may be circulating around as to why your numbers may go up and not come down uh, as quickly. And look, the numbers are still climbing exponentially in the United States. And this could happen for several more weeks before we hit that kind of apex of the curve. And then we have to wait to see what's going to happen. I think uh, some of the criticism uh, that you're seeing against someone like Dr. Fauci is you need to stop getting ahead of the message. Focus on the now, focus on the what might come. But it, it becomes problematic when you start talking about hopeful outcomes when you're not sure what the current outcome is actually going to be. And I think that is, this goes right back to the, to the travel advisory for Canada. It's the United States, again, pumping this kind of optimism into the country by saying, look, we can get this done, but just focus on the other countries that are doing so much worse.
That's that's going to be a challenge for the Biden administration and for the Democrats, I guess, anyway, in this election year, isn't it, Reggie, to try to find that balance? I mean, you want to present some hope. Uh, people are getting pretty ticked off right now. And we've seen that happen with the approval ratings uh, with the Biden administration. Uh, but at the same time, they've got to be pragmatic and realistic about this, too. And, uh, you know, so the Dr. Fauci, of course, who's now part of that administration as the spokesman for this, is is one of the messengers. Who else are they looking toward right now to, to try to get that across and to try to find that balance so the American people will listen to this and, 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 and maintain some sense of, of optimism, I guess, going forward? Well, I mean, and look, you're right. Reality uh, has really kind of been something that has been clouded over for not just the last, you know, several months during the Biden administration, but reality kind of didn't exist during this crisis in the Trump administration either. Uh, and I think Democrats right now, they're not only looking towards their own public health experts, they're looking to uh, local health leaders, local political leaders, local faith leaders to try and drive home that message because not everybody has a good faith in, uh, in the federal government. They may have more faith in people that they trust more. So that is where Democrats are looking out saying to the people around the country uh, that understand the science, look, get this message out there, even kind of looking towards members of the Republican Party who have been less resistant to, to show, look, vaccines work, masking works, this pandemic is bad right now, but we can uh, do better with it if we do simple measures. Obviously, you will meet some kind of political pushback over things like mandates and restrictions, but there are some people that will say, look, you don't have to go into a full restriction, but you can help us out by doing absolutely uh, everything you can, again, focusing on the reality now. This kind of harkens back to how the situation has oftentimes un- uh, played out in Ontario, where they just they don't look at what could potentially happen or they want to wait and see what's going to happen, as opposed to working on what is happening right now, figuring out what's going to happen tomorrow. So by the time a decision needs to be made, it's not two or three weeks down the road and you're starting from scratch. But as you've been reporting, and this is very similar to what's going on here in, in, in Canada, uh, the federal government, of course, can, can do what they want to do here. But a lot of this is going to be dependent upon each individual state. And uh, there was a lot of pushback from a lot of Republican governors, uh, DeSantis in Florida, certainly, uh, and other places uh, about these whole programs. Uh, is that continuing right now? I, I, we're not hearing his fear. I mean, I guess the Biden administration are looking for some champions right now at the state level uh, to try to carry this message across. Uh, Andrew Cuomo, of course, is out of the picture altogether right now. He was the strongest ally for, for government policies uh, during the first couple of waves of this. Uh, do they have anybody on their side that's going to step up and, and, and stand behind the Biden administration? I mean, look, there's nobody coming out and raising their hand saying, I want to be the one who's providing the message to the White House to provide message to the country. Again, you're right, state by state, they're making up their own rules. And especially when you have different states like, you know, California versus Florida, where the rules and the mandates and the restrictions can vary uh, widely. Again, this is where part of that slowdown in process, uh, in progress, really starts to play in. Because again, the federal government can only wave its hand so much and is really reliant on local and state governments to be able to pick up the slack. Uh, but again, there have been criticisms over the federal government for not doing enough for the things that they can do. Look, the federal government put a mask mandate in place for public transportation, which falls under uh, federal rule. There have been criticisms as to why the United States federal government hasn't put a vaccine mandate in place in order to fly domestically, only to fly internationally into the United States. If they were to put something like that in place, a domestic vaccine requirement for travel, that could potentially cut down on the number of infections in the states that are already not putting enough restrictions in place. Picture somebody who doesn't want to get vaccinated now not being able to fly to Disney in Florida. That could start to make 
uh, a difference. And there is pressure building on the federal government to do more, but it always is going to run into resistance. Here we are, you know, 11 months out, 10 months out from an election. People are trying to be careful because they understand their political careers are on the line. But at the same time, they're also understanding that American lives are on the line. Very fluid situation south of the border. We'll be watching, of course, as always, for your reporting on Global National. Reggie, thanks for your uh, spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Reggie Cicchini, uh, Washington correspondent for Global News uh, down in the U.S. Capitol. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.